I started to become interested in looking through um, methods of producing something, producing some type of effect uh, by a physical artifact, learning from that, and then bringing that back to the digital process. Hello, and welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture Podcast Series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today's episode features Viola Ago, who is a 2019 to 2021 Wortham Fellow at Rice University. Viola is an Albanian architectural designer and researcher who directs Miracles Architecture. Prior to coming to Rice, Viola has held positions at OSU's Knowlton School of Architecture and the Taubman College of Architecture at University of Michigan. Her writing has been published in Log, Platt, Cyarx Off-Ramp, and more. We're excited to share a conversation with Viola about the role of digital technology in compositional physics and design, developing research projects over long periods of time, and bringing empathy into these design processes, among other things. Let's dive in. So thank you for being on the podcast today, Viola. Thank you for having me. So first question, as digital technology has increasingly been used in design, the designer has to decide the role of this technology in their architecture. You advocate for a healthier feedback loop between architecture and digital technology, where neither is in service of the other. How do you imagine some of these cross-platform workflows developing? So this is something that I've been working on for a while, I would say even more so with my research project and which kind of develops and has been developing since my first fellowship at University of Michigan. I've always been interested in digital technologies because they offer uh, different types of tools. Um, They also offer another type of conversation where or another possibility for a type of conversation with other disciplines and other aspects of our kind of collective culture. When we use the, you know, not to be specific, but when we use Adobe Suite, we can start to have conversations with photographers and graphic designers and so on. So I found this to be rather fascinating when I was going through my graduate studies. And then in in favor of specificity, I can also add that when I was going through my graduate studies, it was interesting to have these kinds of conversations with people who were in the film and animation industry, for example. So that was quite fascinating to me because it didn't necessarily mean that we were reappropriating tools, so to speak, but rather we were kind of hacking tools. So being introduced or being exposed to different types of software capabilities, for example, and not specifically software that's meant for architecture or for film or for graphics, but um, regardless, essentially, so not necessarily favoriting one over the other. But being introduced to these, what that meant is that we could extract things that we thought were useful through our architectural lens based on some of the things that we're working through and so on. It's a slippery slope for sure, (laughs) because sometimes you can start to work through some type of digital process or software uh, capabilities and so on. You start to get excited and you kind of, you continue down that, that pathway. And then before you know it, it's been, it's sort of like taken over your project. But then, I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with that because not every single project needs to be 
kind of like your best work, like as a standalone, I'm much more interested in every project sort of leading you to another kind of like another project in that continuum. So a project never finishes, so to speak, kind of manifestation of an idea can kind of conclude in a sort of like formal proposal, for instance, but that idea or the formal proposal essentially pushes the idea forward. So then with the next project, you can develop that even further and something else can start to emerge. So, but then what I kind of realize, or one of the things that I was maybe like more afraid of is that kind of like slippery slope. How do you know when you have to pull back and, uh, you know, what kinds of, do we have certain like methodologies um, in place that can help us evaluate whether or not you've gone too far in one direction and whether like when you need to be sort of like pulled back. So one of the things that I started to become really interested in through this kind of like hacking methodology, so borrowing parts of a digital process or a tool set or uh, a new software update or something like that in order to, or borrowing that so that you can sort of challenge it with some type of architectural, visual, formal idea that you're working on or working through at the time. So, and then later on, um, so this was, this was kind of like where it emerged, (laughs) started. And then later on, I started to become really interested in fabrication methodologies or what I like to just call simply put production processes, because I think also this idea of fabrication, it's, um, it's kind of, um, um, it's 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 a strange terminology that kind of like took its own form in architectural school, but it's also kind of like it's self-contradicting in a way too, which is, um, but anyway, uh, that's besides the point. But so I started to look at production processes. I started to become interested in looking through methods of producing something, producing some type of effect uh, by a physical artifact, learning from that, and then bringing that back to the digital process. So for me, that became, for me, like I thought that that was a much more helpful healthier and (laughs) interesting uh, kind of feedback loop that I was interjecting this digital process with with this other uh, non-inherent methodology or process, which by by way of making something. So, so, and, and that also, I mean, I can't deny that that also rose out of as something that I found problematic in the field at the time. We were using digital fabrication processes primarily to sort of like output an idea. So for kind of like a final project, a final model to wow, (laughs) right? So, and that was something that I also sort of like struggled with because this, this pinnacle of the digital project was about exuberant forms that we could then 3D print. And if we wanted to go up and scale, then you split up the model into multiple parts and you 3D print for an entire week or multiple weeks. And it was always, the physical model was always in service of, of the project in terms of kind of like how do you present it and communicate it to the world. So for me, and this is something that I employ in my classes as well, making starts to appear much earlier and not in the sense of like study models, like messy paper models with like table over, you know, at every joint and so on. We actually start working on finishes or articulating, you know, a kind of like tectonic language to the formal language that, you know, that we're developing, for example. So, so for me, the 
production component was a really important, I would even call it a breakthrough <laughs> in my work because um, it, it challenged those processes, those cross-platform, the kind of hacking methodology and so on. And it also inserted another language almost that further informed the way that I even speak about architectural ideas. And I know that's a little bit abstract, but I can, <laughs> I can maybe get into more specifics <laughs> later. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I had kind of a similar experience in undergrad where I felt like we were really using some digital processes to develop just this like great final product model. And I was kind of like, I'm not sure why I'm doing this. What's it, what is it happening for? Like it was a little bit, just exactly like you said, I wasn't sure we were really doing it to understand or approach the limits of what we could do with this technology. So it's definitely an interesting overlap, I think. And just since you brought it up a little bit, how you kind of have these narratives that don't continue on and kind of develop into new projects and onward and onward. Poppy Red is actually kind of one of those projects that you do where you use different platforms and develop a workflow and you kind of explore these methodologies of fabrication processes or production processes, as you say. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about how that project developed and how it's kind of been a continuous research project for you and your work? Yeah, that's a great question. And Poppy Red is a, a seminal piece, I would say, and the continuum of my of my projects. And it's, I, I can't say that it's complete. I think I started it in 2018. So it's been three years and it's still ongoing. And what's interesting about it is that I've been at three different institutions like since then. So I wonder actually at some point I, I would like to maybe take a look again and see if the, the kind of the, in being part of different institutions had uh, has maybe influenced it somehow. I mean, I'm sure it has. So Poppy Red, it started as a study, really. It did not start as a project. I was working through some uh, geometrical operations that, that I'm really interested in, which is this kind of starting with working through primitive geometries. So you have a cluster of rectangular extrusions. And I work in a kind of like methodological process, like at first and restrictive at the same time too, and sort of like start to add things um, as, as I go along. So so the, the geometrical composition, geometrical component rather, is based on this idea of like, what can I do with rectilinear extrusions or rectangular extrusions. And then one of the, as, it, as I mentioned earlier, one of the software packages that I like to work with is a digital sculpting platform. So what I find really interesting about it is that as the user are constantly working through a kind of sculpting methodology, like um, there, there are no numerical inputs and there's no scale too, which is also kind of interesting. So it's a very, again, like I, I'd like the sort of like perversiveness almost like taking rhino geometry where I have these rect rectangular extrusions and bringing them to this platform that operates with no scale and no numerical input. So everything is based on these kind of like sculpting tools. With that, what's interesting about the software also, it offers this kind of like two and a half D plane 
where you can start to project, project geometry in, in a sort of, in a kind of like digital canvas. What I really like about this process is, again, I'm taking rectilinear geometry, sort of like enmeshing them together and dragging them through this kind of one directional. And with Papyrette, I was working strictly through kind of Z direction alone because I'm interested in this idea of the plan and things arranged on a kind of planar composition. So that's how that started. And then at the same time, I had been working on this idea of the line drawing for years before even Papu Red started. And my interest in the line drawing, again, is this kind of like hacking technique, so to speak. I was curious to, to, to generate, or I was, I was really, uh, curious is not even the right word. I was just so I was enamored by renderings, but I had a problem with the separation between setting up lights in a scene and setting up like just sort of like setting up all the settings in a, in a rendering scene and then hitting render and waiting for, you know, three, four hours for something to show up. So I started to become really interested in question of the rendering and kind of I wanted to be a little bit closer to that process. For my graduate thesis, I set out to generate these drawings that looked like renderings that looked like they were completely rasterized images that had all the depth information that renderings have and so on. However, I generated all of them through the use of line work and vector information alone. Why this was so important to me? Again, <laughs> it's one of those things where I just really wanted to be a lot closer and I wanted to have more control over the representation of my project rather than trying to kind of control everything with all these like numerous other things that I didn't actually know like um, how that rendering was going to be produced. Or so, and for, for, for me, it wasn't just the knowledge of, you know, how does, how does a blend material work or how does a fond material work and so on. For me, I really wanted to approach the digital rendering through a kind of like pictorial uh, position almost. So that sort of propelled me into this direction of exploring line drawings. And I've been working on this idea of line drawings, started as a kind of like representation project or questioning the, the sort of like the role of rendering or how we operate within the rendering engine. And then it became the drawing for me became a sort of like a project in its own right. So I've been working on developing these line drawings uh, for a really long period of time and they work in series. A lot of the times I kind of like consider, um, I consider their density as something that can represent sort of like different geometrical compositions as well. So I'm working constantly back and forth between like 2D and 3D um, information. So with Poppy Red, I, it was a sort of like, it was the first time for me that I literally forced the 3D form through a 2D graphic in order to challenge the legibility of the drawing as the rendering and the form um, as a volumetric composition. And that's why I consider Papi Red as kind of like a seminal piece in my work because I literally took these two parts that I'd been working on uh, for a long period of time and I kind of like forced them through one another. And then from then on, Papi Red has sort of developed into this other project, which 
which is in progress. <laughs> it's called House Series. So there's House 1, 2, and 3. And essentially what I'm working through is understanding this event of forcing a 3D volumetric composition through a 2D graphic plane, blanket, whatever you want to call it. And then understanding or sort of like observing that operation or that event rather and understanding or maybe isolating moments where there can be more expression from an architectural lens. So have that be tectonic, graphic, formal, compositional, whatever that may be. And the house series is is working on those kinds of opportunities, sort of like an isolation between one, two, and three. Oh, that's so fascinating. And I also think there's something interesting about even early on in your explanation of it, you talked about using a sculpting software that's really scaleless. So what kind of problems arise when you're creating this form that's 3D and then it's interacting with this 2D, I love the word blanket for that, kind of like it, it coats it and hugs it, covers it. But then how do you translate that to issues of scale? in terms of house, architectural elements for that, all of the questions that come up with that? That's an amazing question. (laughs) Um, I I love that question, A, because it's unanswerable, so to speak. At the same time, it's the question that continues to feed the project that, that has led to house series one, two, and three. So what's really interesting about this, um, about Poppy Red is that the line drawing, which creates the gra- the graphic, which is the rendering, which is the blanket, which is, you know, that, that 2D plane. It's, um, so it's generated, uh, again, using vector information alone. And I added yet another, what's the, like another restriction to the system, so to speak, where every vector information is a stroke one in Illustrator. So there is a kind of, uh, because by isolating or by limiting or adding more limits uh, to the system, then you're really testing towards something. So the answer to your question is um, a tremendous back and forth process, bringing the geometry um, into the sculpting uh, platform, sort of like operating through that platform, bringing it back um, to, I mean, well, a lot of the times they'll do the the graphic operations um, in the sculpting platform because it has incredibly powerful graphic uh, tools and, and processes that are available in it. But the idea is that with the house series, for example, I started to test the, for example, like the, that again, the forceful event between the 3D and the 2D, the lines become stretched. They become skewed. The density of the lines sometimes will create a fill rather than seeing the each distinct individual line. At other times, because of the 3D information, uh, there will be facets or faces rather that the, there won't be any lines at all. So then they'll become a void. So the the going back and forth is really important in this in this process. And what's really important here is that I'm always looking for moments of visual interest. So Poppy Red was isolated in the sense that it was a study project. Everything in it is a kind of proposal. It's a kind of it's a kind of proposal for a sort of like 
um, visual interest, right? Now with the house series, with the introduction of tectonic elements, structural systems, floor slabs, program, and so on, that really started to bring the question of scale into play. So this was, of course, utterly in love with the house series right now. And I think I'm probably going to continue to work on them for uh, a little while longer, I would say. So now I'm starting to uh, create closer conversations between the the kind of the line drawing that becomes a graphic blanket and how that can start to communicate with the structural system underneath. So tectonics has been something that I've always been interested in because of this this desire to sort of move away from creating form, 3D printing form, trying to then make a larger 3D printer to make the form. Like, you know? so, um, so in an attempt to move away from that, tectonics starts to enter the, the sort of the picture a little bit earlier in the process. So so then I also started to introduce um, more uh, coloration as a kind of, as another layer to that type of system. So um, different colors um, now correspond to the tectonic underlayment of, of the formal uh, apparatus for house one, two, and three. I just keep saying, wow, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's so, I feel like there's so many, like this, just thinking about these two things could be like one whole hour of questions. I think maybe this is kind of related in the sense that I'm assuming this uses platforms and kind of engages some of these other questions that we've already been talking about. But one of the other things you look at in your work is compositional physics. And I'm wondering first if maybe you can briefly explain how that engages with design, at least maybe for you, and then just some of the trajectory of how that's been used in design up to today. Yeah, that's 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 another um, long, long answered question. <laughs> so uh, compositional physics, again, like I think I think it started it's kind of funny because I think a lot of my projects start with a kind of question, with a desire to question something and not necessarily to develop something per se. And a lot of them, you know, don't get answered and they just kind of stop like in the very beginning. And sometimes I go back to them years later, but compositional physics like started with this, with this, it, it was kind of an observation as we know in architecture, architecture tends to be kind of generational almost like there's, um, you know, the 10 years ago, the 20 years ago, not necessarily like, age-wise in terms of the architect. But so I was starting to observe some of the projects that were um, emerging. And I started to notice that similarly, like my interest in kind of hacking sort of tools that were meant to do something else, but extracting uh, valuable potentialities from those tools with an architectural lens, um, I started to notice that a lot of kind of experimental practices were working with um, physics engines and video game platforms. And of course, this, this, this piqued my interest. So, so with, so it first um, started with the log article, which was published, I think in 2019, I think it was September, August, September, (laughs) something like that. in 2019. And this article was really, it was an observation article. It was a kind of survey. And the questions that I was starting to ask is, you know, where, when have we done this before? 
have other disciplines kind of like operated in similar manners? Um, what can we look to? What are some of the potentials that could arise out of this? And one of the th- one of the things that I found really valuable in that article was a kind of uh, communication, or even maybe maybe a feedback loop <laughs> um, between um, popular image culture, kind of uh, video game industry and film industry, which I think architecture has borrowed from the film industry. Um, and of course, our discipline previously, but I think like now the emergence of the video game and um, the video game industry was, was starting to become uh, really interesting. So, and again, I'm somebody who kind of like trained in thinking through animated forms and using animations um, as as a way of not necessarily exploring architectural ideas, but representing architectural ideas at the very least. So, this was a kind of like natural continuation for me. So, I started to become really interested in in, in experimental offices that were working through these kinds of processes. And then, of course, um, as soon as you finish one writing piece, you know, that that brings up like the next question. So with the log um, article on compositional physics, essentially the question that I like that I sort of like end on is whether or not we can have a healthier relationship with digital tools, because we did go through a kind of full wholesale of digital tools to make architecture from beginning to end that was a little bit more I would say <laughs> I don't want to upset anyone here but <laughs> I think it, it kind of became its own project overnight and I think it was a little bit it, it lacked a kind of a critical questioning uh, so to speak so that's that's where uh, compositional physics kind of like emerged and it, it arose out of this kind of desire and then as I started to kind of like return to some of the uh, some of the platforms that I had worked with um, earlier in, in my <laughs> training as an architect, I started to kind of like combine the sculpting process, the sculpting platform with some more kind of like compositional components that were offered from other um, physics engines in animation software that were all of a sudden were produced in these like, so actually I'll take like a, a very brief kind of like technical um, <laughs> sidetrack uh, because I think it's important because there's also this thing where when uh, when physics engines were first introduced in the video game industry, nobody could afford them. They were just so incredibly expensive. You only had two companies that were working on them. And, you know, so, so it was for someone like me and you, for example, if we wanted to work on them, it, there would be no way of doing that. And then all of a sudden, physics engines and video game platforms are free. Um, you can anyone can make a game and anyone can make an, an app for you know iPhone, Android, I don't know, whatever, Google, I don't, I don't know all the different types of phones. But so there, so there, like this level of accessibility and availability um, was really important. And then another thing that like, that was really interesting is that the physics engines that I was working with when I was a grad student, it was, it was, the learning curve was steep. You had to, you know, you had to like, dedicate like a, a, an enormous part of your um, efforts into learning that. And all of a sudden with this like rise of, of physics engines and these um, animation platforms and so on, the now we have these plugins for any of our 3D modeling softwares in architecture, you know, let's just kind of stick to architecture that are kind of like plug and play. Um, you enter like three inputs and you kind of like change some things around and things happen, right? So, so I think 
that what's really interesting about like, there's no coin. It's not a coincidence that all of a sudden, you know, the new software update includes this like plug and play physics engine. Right. I mean, if you wanted to, you could still uh, kind of like old school and um, use if you wanted to have more control and to, to, like you, you would have to sort of like continue that steep learning curve. Like that's still, that's still there. But, but I, I do think that when things are in the air, whether we're conscious of it or not, we're developing things simultaneously, whether we're architects, filmmakers, video game designers, or I don't know, poets, or <laughs> I think, yeah, we're we're kind of developing these ideas um, in tandem with one another, that things are just in the air. And I find that incredibly fascinating, which is, I think, what kind of like informed the argument with the second piece that I can, that I consider to be in continuation with uh, compositional physics, which is the fusion axis piece for Platt. Yeah, so that piece actually um, continues on, I guess, that line of inquiry because it's actually, it's called a phenomenological inquiry is the subtitle of the piece because I think you're trying to deal with how do you, the question of we have these physics engines and kind of solvers and the plug and play aspect of it, which is great because we don't necessarily have to meet the steep learning curve anymore, or kind of meet the financial bar of that. But then how do we use that productively in design? And I think one of the things that you talk about is you're thinking about how these digital technologies can be used in design processes and they can respond to all the conditions of contemporary society. And then really how we can capture a moment in the in an iterative design process process that helps us feel something. And what I'm wondering if you can talk about a little bit more is how can we as designers kind of recognize and integrate what you bring up about this concept, phenomenology of empathy, um, and how we utilize digital technology in design processes. There's a lot of parts to this. And maybe like the first thing to start with is this kind of like phenomenology has a bad rap to begin with. And also when you say phenomenology, people think Heidegger. Um, he is the kind of like the figure. So, but I was curious to go back to phenomenology because I think there's a lot there that we can draw from. And I'm also curious, generally speaking, to return to some of these like really important historical, theoretical, philosophical moments in time and look at things that might've been missed, sort of like to revisit and to revise almost. Right. So that we don't just attribute all this work that was in the air that more than one person worked on instead of just sort of, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the instead of is. I'm, I'm, I'm actually not, I'm not going to go <laughs> there, but, but I am genuinely interested in, in revisiting these moments and, and see what else was there. So, so with the, the phenomenological inquiry, I was really curious about the work of Edith Stein. So that's what sort of, that was one aspect that I kind of like gravitated towards. So what was really interesting about Edith Stein is that she was one female, the only female student in um, Husserl's circle, so to speak. And she was his research assistant for many years. She did her dissertation under him and so on. And she was the only one that, so phenomenology is a kind of like methodology for philosophy. It's a one way. The epoche is the, the kind of the method that Husserl came up with, which was sort of like, I reach out to something and I observe this thing and I talk about every single quality and that kind of uh, phenomenological experience of the thing. So Edith Stein was the first person in this group of people. And there's like, I don't know, maybe like at least like 20 people that were working on this like simultaneously, primarily in Germany and France and Austria, I think. And Edith Stein asked the question, well, what about the thing looking back at you? And what about 
other things looking back at you? What's the, what, like, when does it come back? Because it's not just one directional. And I found that fascinating because of course it took a woman to ask <laughs> the question of the thing looking back at you, because um, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking here about the 1920s and thirties. And I think like women um, in academia at the time had a much more difficult time than uh, they have now, I would say. And uh, Edith Sign, even though she had her dissertation, she could never uh, teach at any of the universities um, because women essentially were not allowed to teach at the time. So anyways, besides the point, but very important point. So so I started to become really interested in her uh, phenomenological inquiries um, through this idea of empathy. So in and it's interesting because I do visit the idea of empathy theory in the log article, but in the log article, I'm looking at it strictly through a kind of an evaluative process, right? So you look at something that's slumping and you all of a sudden feel like you're slumping and you kind of have like a phenomenological or like an empathetic reaction to like something that's slumping. So something that's broken or something that is suspended in the air, right? So, and that was interesting from a kind of visual dynamic perspective. And here I'm talking about Rudolf Arnheim and Theodore Lips. And then with the plot piece, I started to become more interested in the, the question of um, the designer, the author. And instead of looking at the final thing, you know, because for me and my work, I have this kind of back and forth process, constantly going from one software to the other, learning something from one process, going back, reevaluating and so on. And I started to think that this is the project. The project is, at every step of the way, you have an empathetic reaction. You have an empathetic conversation with the thing that you're making. And that is like, you're not just the author of this thing. The thing is speaking back to you because you're making these decisions, but you're making these decisions based on how the thing, the composition, the model, the object, the form, the graphic, the drawing, whatever it is that you're working on, it's speaking back to you. It's influencing you. So, so, so that's when, so that's why I wanted to really Really write the piece and and Edith Sign was was or her work was really important in this idea and as she calls it a fusion when the thing talks back to you when you become aware of your own physical body when something talks back to you because she argues that we reach through things with our subconsciousness and it's only when we have a kind of a sort of a, a kind of like physical reaction that that creates the fusion between our subconsciousness and or in more actual term, the terminology that she uses is the, the sensorial body and the physical body that create this kind of like fusion in between. So I started to really, as I'm, as I'm reading this and I'm working on house three, I think at the time and, you know, clicking and regenerating a new, new iteration and bringing something else. And it just sort of like, I mean, I was definitely influenced by her work and it just kind of like clicked for me that this is really, it's not necessarily the kind of the theater lips and the Rudolf Arnheim, which is sort of like, you know, we see a column and we feel tall, right? Um, it's much, I was, I just started to become really, really interested in the, the project as the process. And with that, I think with which kind of maybe if I can take like a, a sidetrack. One of the pieces that I'm working on now, um, and I I touched on a little bit on it, like in, a, in another article on um, the demolition of the National Theater in Albania and Tirana, but um, more earnestly, I want to I'm working on this piece now that talks about the idea of the I, the person, which which stems from uh, Edith Sine's work. And in this work, I'm looking at Jane Bennett and how she proposes that the the 
I becomes like in the process of something. So again, like she's talking about the material world, about how the material world calls on to us. So she's much more interested about how the material world reaches out to us and how everything is vibrant and everything is moving and everything is in continuum. Um, and um, so this is, so again, like from like an architect's perspective, from somebody who works with like processes and digital processes and down the question of authorship, this becomes really fascinating because all of a sudden I'm starting to think that this this question of the author or the designer or to a certain extent even the user like do we know if we're the authors or the user like and again like I'm not looking to kind of to define between any of those categories but I'm much more interested in maybe proposing um, and again these are like work in progress thoughts um, but proposing that we don't we're not authors who come to a project or a process and develop a project we become authors our authorship is in the making as we engage in these processes that it's all it's it's we're kind of like in tandem and in sort of in corresponding with that process that we're becoming together and that's an even further kind of like fusion between like the process that that creates something and I'm just interested in process for now and the I so and uh, what Jane Bennett does is like she references literary critic I think um, I might have that wrong but Branka Arsic who talks about the the idea that influence comes before knowledge that we're influenced by things before we can have a kind of like understanding or knowledge of the thing that is influencing us. And I find that to be super fascinating and absolutely just incredible and beautiful and just something that, you know, makes me want to go and like make something right away. <laughs> because yeah, I just, I, you know, influence before knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that makes so much sense. And I also, I appreciate just giving more context on Edith's work because I think it is, it was really great to read the piece and kind of get a little bit more understanding on just this process of bringing empathy into the kind of design process at an iterative level, but also it's just really interesting to hear that history behind it and have a greater understanding of like, who's asking these questions, who's actually formulating these thoughts. Cause I think it's really important that we understand where those are coming from as well. Like it's not just, oh yeah, Heidegger did all of this and he should be the, but it's really, there's other people who are, there's so many theorists and we have to like really think about where some of the points are coming from. Um, so I appreciated that. Yeah. That was, I mean, this, uh, that's also something that's important to me when I construct my syllabi and so on. And it's just sort of like revisiting like really important moments or moments that I think are important in terms of the project or the work that I'm doing at, at, at the time or, you know, whatever uh, the framework is for, for, the, for the class, for instance, and, and always paraphrasing that. Yes, like, you know, maybe we don't need to talk about this anymore, but like, let's revisit it just for like a few weeks and <laughs> see what we think. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then I think you were kind of mentioning like the user, the author, what's going on in all of this. And I think it is interesting to consider that we all have a very different kind of way of perceiving things. And we all probably are experiencing empathy at different points. If we're approaching um, a work of architecture, for example, or a sculpture or what have you. So I'm wondering, what do you think phenomenology of empathy kind of how, what is the part that it plays in the, in a user's experience of an architecture drived in this way? 
Yeah, that's a really difficult question. I definitely don't have the answer for it, but I have some thoughts. <laughs> um, so um, it's, and I think it, it comes back to this question of the eye, right? And one of the things, I'm, I'm going to bring in someone else um, into this conversation. Um, so uh, when I was the yes, I was visiting assistant professor at OSU. Um, I put on this uh, part of the kind of like the fellowship and the professorship, whatever you want to call it. It was never official. It was kind of interchangeable. <laughs> was um, a kind of public programming component that sort of like um, um, that was. <laughs> part of the position. So in one of them, I organized a kind of like a workshop series again for the students. And um, I asked an artist um, who was just completing her MFA at UCLA, Delena Tran, uh, to come in and um, host like hold a wor- workshop over the weekend and uh, give a kind of like um, a sort of like artist talk. Right. And it was so refreshing to see someone approach and present their work as so personal to them without apologizing. (laughs) And I found that to be incredibly important and valuable in at, at this kind of like moment that we occupy in architecture. So we, as architects, we kind of were given this like formula that I think is like from modernism or something that, you know, you do the research, you got to have, you know, three references and a couple of case studies and, you know, this entire like incredible formula that you know it's it's interchangeable you can plug different things in and so on but at the end of the day the sort of like the thesis statement or you know what are your references what are your case studies and so on it's like I feel like that's so detrimental to our work because our work is really personal to us we do have an empathetic, haptic relationship and intimate relationship with our work. And yet when we present it, we do everything that we possibly can to delaminate ourselves from the work because otherwise it's bad. <laughs> so, so I think um, I'm looking at like the artists and the art discipline now. Um, and I've always looked at artwork from a kind of like visual perspective, of course, but I mean, and also conceptualism and whatever, but anyway, I'm more interested now to see how artists approach that kind of intimate relationship between them as the artists and their work. And what are some of the anxieties even that come with that? or or even like placing vulnerabilities because it is a kind of like a level of vulnerability of like placing yourself in the work and then presenting the work to the world, right? And the amount of strength that that takes. Like, I'm not saying that I'm able to do that, <laughs> but I find I this is something that I'm working towards, I would say. So again, like turning to Edith Stein and Jane Bennett and Branka Arsich um, is this, this question of, of talking about the I as much as you talk about the project. So talking about you as a designer, you as the author, and I think whether, you know, you're authoring something that is completely new and lack of better terms, or whether it's something that's a continuation of something else, or whether it's something that, whether it's you revisiting an old project and kind of like filling the blank, like, I don't care. That's not, you know, but what's becoming really important to me is the idea that we stop kind of externalizing ourselves from the work that we produce because we are embedded in it and we are kind of becoming as 
like our becoming is happening at the same time that the process of generating some work is happening. So that's the kind of, that's the ambition. How to get there is really difficult, I think. <laughs> um, and what's important to also know, uh, or note rather, is that that is going to be different for everyone. And that's okay. But I think that where this argument kind of breaks, and I love to do this, <laughs> I love to break my own arguments, <laughs> is that in the art world, I think it's a little bit easier to do so because a piece of artwork, though it has a lot of responsibility and it carries a lot of responsibility with it as, as a catalyst for our kind of collective culture and so on, it does not necessarily um, have to respond to very strict programmatic, logistical, or other types of social issues in such, you know, implicit, sorry, explicit and real ways in a way. So, so I think that that's the kind of, I think that's my next question (laughs) that I'm going to try to (laughs) figure out, so to speak, in terms of, you know, how do we tie this with some of the other incredibly powerful and important uh, responsibilities that we have as architects. Yeah, I mean, that's so fascinating because I feel like, I mean, the empathy part, I kind of, I feel like that's always, you you get it a little bit when you're making designs and you kind of are understanding that at every point in the process, there's, you're like, oh, this needs to do this or I need to, you're, you're evaluating it. But that's very, so interesting to consider that question of how do you really keep yourself and kind of with all of those vulnerabilities and bring that to a a design problem or question that has to really answer all of these issues for other people and how can you because I think part of it is if you're empathetic about it you're going to you're going to solve some of those questions and you can do it when you put those parts of yourself into it but it's it's going to be hard and it's going to hard in so many different ways (laughs) And then the other thing is like the the kind of the, the collectivity component, right? Like the, you know, how do you, so, so far we've been talking about the kind of like the singular design person and their process, right? But um, in order for architecture to take place, <laughs> we know that you need a team of people, not just the architects, but a ton of other different uh, groups of people from different disciplines um, for something to uh, take place. So, so I think so. those are some of the other questions that I'm asking currently and sort of um, reversing the lens almost and kind of seeing it from, from multiple directions. So like looking at architecture from all these different types of directions in this idea of the eye and the process and how you're not like an author to begin with, but your authorship is in correspondence to the project and it happens at the same time. It's kind of time is linear <laughs> type of question, but anyway, <laughs> not the, not in a kind of scientific term or in the scientific position, but yeah, these are, these are all questions. And, um, and I think I like to approach all my projects with a series of questions um, because I'm much more interested in kind of, um, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's what pushes my project for my projects forward. I think it's why I applied to my first fellowship, right? Like I was asking a series of questions and I was like, I don't have the answers. <laughs> I need the time and space and the kind of collectivity where I can start to ask some of these questions and maybe start to answer some of them. And here I am five years later. <laughs> yeah. And then it's just, what are the conditions that you need to kind of, or like what needs to happen for you to be able to answer this next big question and 
really address all of those different lenses and perspectives of it. Yeah, that's been, I mean, I think that has been actually quite challenging uh, in my trajectory, I would say. Um, But again, like every time that there are these kind of like challenging conditions, to be honest, like I think it propels the work that much more forward than I had originally intended. So, so I welcome it. I kind of, I I feel like that's sort of like an environment where I thrive in sort of like constantly kind of like allowing or maybe even like welcoming or embracing like foreign things that weren't there the year before um, to enter that conversation and kind of like destabilize things a little bit. (laughs) Well, I feel like that's great. And it's, I'm really excited to see where that, will develop because I want to, I want to hear this, the answer to this question or, (laughs) or how do we figure that out? That's going to be, it's going to be great. Yeah. I hope so. (laughs) I'll let you know in a year where we are at, (laughs) but it's probably going to take a lot longer than that. (laughs) Well, thank you for being here today, Viola. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. For more information on Viola Ago's work, please visit her website, miraclesarchitecture.com, or you can find her on Instagram at Viola Ago. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platforms to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Tete a Tete.